the testing has got to be a lot more robust in order for people to make the decisions they need to make. The urgency, the real call to action is to really scale up the testing because it's grossly inadequate and it's really hurting the response. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And I know we promised you an episode or two about storytelling, but right now, we could all use more dialogue on coronavirus in Arizona. Besides the fact that it's on everybody's mind right now, it is really important that we build a database shared understanding of the key things we all need to focus on in order to protect the health and well-being of all Arizonans. So today, we're bringing you behind the scenes into the thinking and daily work of two very focused public health professionals, people who are focused on you, your family, and your community. We'll introduce them in just a minute, but as we get into the conversation, remember these two things. Number one, novel coronavirus, aka new coronavirus, aka COVID-19, is, like the name suggests, new territory for us all. Across the countries who are quote-unquote ahead of us in the progression, it has left an impact that looks nothing like the flu and doesn't look so much like H1N1 did in 2009 or SARS did in 2013 for that matter, although there are some historical comparisons that may be helpful. Number two, this episode was recorded midday on March 16th, 2020. If past weeks are any indication, the data, knowledge, science, and the overall situation on which this conversation was based will evolve, possibly very quickly. That said, the more knowledge we share as that knowledge evolves, the better. So here we go. Let's get to our guests and the conversation. It's time to talk about what we can do together to address coronavirus and its impact on Arizonans' health and well-being. Today, we have two fantastic people in the room. We have Mr. Will Humble, formerly from the Arizona Department of Health Services, currently with the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you? Good. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And then to my left, Marcus Johnson, Director of Health Policy, Vitalist Health Foundation. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Good to see you. Good to see you. Don't get to see you at the office, but I get to see you here. <laughs> Will Humble, today, let's just time mark it. It is March 16th. About 20 days ago, believe it or not, an op-ed ran in uh, the Arizona Republic, co-authored by you and Bob England, talking about where we were with the new COVID-19 novel coronavirus. At that time, the advice was don't panic. What's happened since then, and what are your thoughts now? So you say it was 20 days ago. It seems like 20 years ago. <laughs> Indeed. To be honest. Indeed. Um, yeah, a lot has changed. I mean, um, 20 days ago, we were really looking at for the most part, data coming out of China. Um, there wasn't the spread. There may have been an initial case in Italy at that time, you know, the first travel case in Northern Italy and, and that. Um, and so since then, there's been a lot of data coming out about the virus, what it does, how it behaves, who's at risk, how easily it's transmitted. Um, and there's more and more research and modeling that's become available to help us as a system to figure out um, some approaches to help slow the spread, save some lives, and get past this. You um, mentioned modeling. As we were driving over here, there was a press conference going on with the President of the United States talking about the models that they're running, uh, and a recommendation just came out right before we sat down to do this podcast saying that groups should be limited to 10 or less. Yeah, that's what I heard, too, that they're recommending 10 or less for the next two weeks. So that would be till basically the end of March. 
So everybody's pulling from the same data now and saying this is different, different than anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. The other thing I heard, it was an ambassador. She mentioned that the modeling showed there's two main things. A, what makes a difference is what they were looking at. Um, social distancing makes a difference. And when they put in the model, like we're describing, where the 10 or less people in a place at the same time, that that had a powerful impact. But more than that, they said the number one thing that they found in the model is that when there's a case in a household, that the entire household needs to go into quarantine for two weeks. And when people comply with that, that was the most powerful intervention inside the model. So those two things, and they'd make intuitive sense to me, because if you look at what happened both in South Korea, who have, I think, the best data, better than the data in China, one of the things that you see is that the transmission within the household drove the epidemic. If the household quarantines together, is isolated together, may give it to each other, but as long as they stay home, they're not going to spread it to the neighbors, and that's enough to have a profound impact on how quickly this spreads. And ultimately the goal, which everyone knows by now, is to like flatten that curve so that the healthcare system has an opportunity to be able to treat all the people that need treatment at any given time. The social distancing things we're talking about flatten that curve, but it also extends the curve. So we can reduce the peak so that we won't run out of respirators or staff at hospitals if we do all of these things. But it's also going to push the curve out further to the right. That's what you have to do because we can't put ourselves in a position like they are in Northern Italy where they're making decisions about who's getting treatment and who's not. It's Indeed. triage. Indeed. Uh, there's a popular saying, Will, that people say, this is not my first rodeo. This is not your first pandemic. No, but it's way worse than the, my first pandemic, which was H1N1. Yeah. The data really plays that out at this point. Well, let me say this. It's way worse for elderly people. Because if you remember H1N1, that was 2009, the beginning of H1N1 felt just like late February and early March to me, mm -hmm. because H1N1 seemed like it could be a lot like this, this SARS COVID virus. Turned out to be it was less harmful, especially for the elderly. And if you remember that H1N1, that was hitting kids harder. Elderly people, especially folks over 50 with H1N1, had some antibodies from an influenza virus that they were exposed to in their youth and so had some residual antibody response that put them at the same or even a little less risk. This virus is completely different. It's really hitting the elderly hard. And I keep saying the South Korea data is better, best I've seen in the world. And it's striking to see what the case fatality rate is in South Korea. So often you see the WHO coming out with a 3.4% or in China, they would say 2%. But if you look at the case fatality rate as an average in South Korea, it changes depending on the day, but it's between 0.7% and 0.9%. So less than 1% as a total, but it's not evenly distributed. For people over 80, um, it's killing 10% of the, of the people who get infected. Um, for people over 70, between 70 and 80, it's um, around 7%. So that's profound. If you look at people under 40 using that South Korea data, and they've, they've screened a lot of people, way more than we're doing in this country. The fatality rate for people under 40 is 0.004%. So really not that harmful to people under 40, but it's 
super important for people under 40, even though it may not be lethal to them to behave as the rest of us so that they don't amplify the virus and infect our seniors. Marcus, one of the things when we were talking about having this conversation today, uh, you said, you know, one of the things we got to talk about is the folks who are walking around saying this is just another version of the flu. Based on the things that Will was just saying, based on the things that you've been looking at, how would you address people who, who actually still say that as of today? Will brings up a number of really good points. I mean, one of them is that the case fatality ratio for this is greater than the flu. It is also far more contagious than the flu. And as we look at the number of individuals who are being infected with this, just as Will is stating, it is far more dangerous for elderly and for individuals who have underlying conditions right now. Somebody like myself, who's in my mid to late 30s, I've got a kid or kids at home, the likelihood that it significantly affects me or my children is probably slim. However, I think we need to be really cognizant of the fact that it's not just about us as individuals, but about the way that we could potentially transmit this to those other individuals who are maybe elderly or have underlying conditions. So that's a difficult message to get across because I think just we as, as human beings, we react about how is this going to affect me individually first, and then we start to think about, oh, how might I transmit this? Part of the challenge that we have is to ensure that as many people as possible are not just thinking about themselves, but about the people that they interact with on a daily basis. And yes, creating some sort of a community-wide intervention where we're actually committed to, all right, if one of us gets infected within our household, we're locking down as a household because that's really what's going to start to curb the transmission rate. P.S., you have a wife who works in the healthcare industry. What's the take from your wife and how you think about your household? We have a room where it's fully stocked with whatever we need. It has a bathroom attached to it. We joke that if her or myself come down infected, that the healthy one will feed the other through the window or leave food at the door. <laughs> you know, it's, it's important. I don't think that it's a matter of panicking. It's a matter of like really planning through and thinking that, uh, if we as in the household are at higher risk of actually getting infected, then what are we going to do about it? It means making sure that we have a clean as possible household, making sure that we do have certain provisions within the home, and commuting that with friends and family as well. Will said a moment ago that that 20 days since that op-ed was published feels like 20 years. Certainly you've been on the front lines of this the whole time. What's your experience in the last 20 years then, or the last 20 days as it were, and like how has, how has the thinking evolved and what does that tell us about 20 days from now? Will this podcast also be completely out of date and wrong? There's a good chance that two days from now, this podcast <laughs> is, is outdated. And I don't know necessarily wrong, but just outdated. Here's part of the silver lining that I see. When you look at, when you see the news stories coming out from Italy and Spain and communities actually coming together, you know, you see these videos of Italians in their apartments singing to one another and, and playing instruments. You hear about people in Spain giving rounds of applause to the healthcare workers as they're getting off the shift. If you would have told me that those sorts of things were possible in the United States a couple of months ago, or if you would have told me that when I look out my office today on a 15-story building and look down and, and don't see nearly as many cars, that it seems like people are actually hearing the message right now. I still think I understand that there's people who are a little bit hesitant or kind of denying the severity of this, but I think that the majority of folks are really listening to this and are doing their best to start distancing themselves socially. So it's encouraging the fact that people are starting to take this seriously. But as we heard from the White House today, we need to take this a little bit more seriously still. By the way, this is not an economics podcast. This is a health podcast. 
but we also know that the economic well-being of our country factors into how well people can conduct and lead healthy lives. There are different economic strata that are going to be exposed equally to this virus, and yet they will more than likely suffer disproportionate impacts. Again, a rapidly evolving situation. I don't think any of us have the answers, but to the extent that you have been thinking about that, Marcus, what are your thoughts going forward about what we need to be thinking about besides just getting tested, besides just washing hands, but how do we think about our entire community? I mean, what you just talked about earlier in terms of the way Italians are interacting with each other and the way shift workers are being applauded, but it has to probably go a little bit deeper than that, doesn't it? Yes. The hope is that the bill that's going through the Congress right now, that's hopefully going to pass out of the Senate early this week, helps to start to address some of that, realizing that this is not just a health issue, that it is an economic issue, that it is a community-wide issue looking at things like paid sick leave, trying to predict how is this going to affect certain populations more so than others. When you think about individuals who are experiencing homelessness right now, when you think about low-income populations that just by the nature of the housing market are forced to live in closer quarters, there are certain populations, certain communities that are likely going to be at higher risk to this virus, populations that aren't necessarily the specific focus in the majority of the media that we hear about. So yeah, you know, the foundation that we work for is really thinking about that and trying to encourage other philanthropy to think through that, that even though there's going to be a bunch of hopefully really great funding and really great ideas coming from Washington, that there are going to be some critical gaps that still need to be filled within the community. So let's talk about a few quick basic concepts. And as if this one hasn't been drilled enough into people's heads, let's just talk about it one more time. Wash your damn hands, right? People are doing that. They are. Yeah. I I don't think people paid that much attention during H1N1. I don't think it changed behavior that much with respect to hand washing and stuff. Part of it, I think, is peer pressure, too. I personally, whenever I'm washing my hands and I have individuals, especially even at work, people around me, I know people are watching and, and counting to 20. I feel that. And people joke about it sometimes, too. I'm a public health guy by background, so I kind of like seeing that within people. But I think there's more peer pressure now, too, to to get people to take yeah. those practices. And this is substantially different from regular influenza or anything that we had with H1N1, and people know it. It's captured the public's attention unlike anything else, in, and I'm pushing 60. 9-11 did sort of feel like this in a way. I have a sense that it's really people are, are behaving differently. Now on the flip side, all you got to do is go on Twitter for a second. And if you try the hashtag millennial Darwinism, you will see lines of people waiting to get into bars for St. Patrick's Day celebrations. So that we still have a number of people that don't quite understand the concept of social distancing. Well, let me give you an alternative hypothesis. Maybe they understand the data and that they're not at high risk and they don't care. That or could... don't get the, the ramifications of the fact that they might get infected at the bar, might be even asymptomatic, but spread it to other people and a grandmother that they don't even know dies from the virus. Do they make that connection? I think it could be the millennials know for people under 29, unless you've got some sort of underlying medical condition, you're going to get through it. You might not even know you had it. And so the key is getting that group of folks to understand that we're in this thing together and it's not about you, it's about us. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because... If people don't understand that, they're going to act cavalierly. They're going to think that the world is their oyster and there's plenty of parking spaces and, and so yeah. on and so forth, right? So that begs the question. And as someone who last occupied the seat of the Department of Health Services director, at what point does the governor or does the Department of Health Services or any of these organizations in conjunction with each other 
start to make certain calls for people if they can't make good calls for themselves. Your question answered itself. It's the if. And I think right now, everything that I've seen has shown me that individual organizations, nonprofits, businesses, sports are making decisions on their own that are good. And that's refreshing to see. And it's also really important because it makes your job as the health director or a county health department director easy when you don't have to use the powers of the state that you've been given by virtue of your appointment to do things, that people are doing it on their own for the right reasons. And so I think Marcus talked about a silver lining here. I think that is one, too, that I've seen decisions be made by organizations that I never thought would make those kinds of decisions, like canceling spring training, suspending the NBA season, canceling the March Madness tournament. As a cynic, I would have thought there's too much money. They'll never do that. You'll have to use the power of the state to shut down the NCAA men's basketball tournament. It's too profitable. Honestly, that's what I would have thought, but that's not what happened. So people get it. People get the idea of flattening the curve. Generally speaking, the mood of the nation shifted very, very rapidly in like the space of five days almost. Even when it's hitting them hard financially. Yeah. But what we're talking about are rich people making decisions that they can afford to make. I'm talking about owners of those leagues. What I'm fearful of is what happens to working families who punch a <clears throat> clock and now they're not going to work or they can't go to work because the schools are closed, and they were already close to the margin in terms of day-to-day living. And I'm just crossing my fingers that the focus of the bill that comes out of the U.S. Congress is going to go right at that population. I'm not that concerned that American Airlines is losing quarterly profits and that kind of stuff. I hope the money isn't going to big corporations. It needs to go to working families to help them get past this. Because here I am, I'm an upper middle class person. I'm going to be able to figure this out and do it. And it's not going to financially not a killer to me. But for a lot of people, this is really real. And probably there's people out there where the economic damage and the economic opportunities lost are scarier than the virus. Mm-hmm. Likely more immediate, too. Yes. Right? You can it, see it. You can't see the virus, but you can see the economic. You can get Bingo. evicted yep. because you can't pay your bills before you get the virus. That's an example mm-hmm. because you were relying on a paycheck you're no longer getting. And so I was listening to the press conference in the White House on the way over here, and I remember thinking this exact thing, which is the bill in Congress, if they really are serious about executing this plan about no groups bigger than 10, They've got to put their money where their mouth is and put resources into the places that can make that happen. And that's not giving a whole bunch of money to a cruise line, and it's not giving a bunch of money to a corporation. It's figuring out how to help working families get over the hump. And you're not the first to say that in the last few days. I've seen a number of articles where people said, look, if this is going to work, the money has to go straight to the people. Fast. Very fast. Not like, we'll reimburse you in October. It needs to be quick. Yeah, Absolutely. Will, you brought in the notion very early in this conversation of flattening the curve, essentially that if we do social distancing, then we can avoid a big spike in infections. By doing that, we will not overburden the healthcare system. 
So your keys in this equation at this point for this pandemic are flatten the curve and then deal with the repercussions of flattening that curve by creating a way for people to survive as working class families. Mm -hmm. Other keys? We've got to get more testing. I mean, it's super frustrating the last couple of weeks for doctors out there. Patients are coming in with a cough and a fever, but they're not seriously ill. They have no known contact with another case, and they have to send those patients away and say, I'm sorry, you don't meet the protocol and we can't test you. That is changing now. A couple of new private sector labs that started three days ago running some tests, and that has allowed the protocol to go beyond the very narrow protocol that CDC had set up until now, where you had to be seriously ill or have a known contact in order to get a test. The testing has got to be a lot more robust in order for people to make the decisions they need to make. So at the press conference, they were talking about quarantining once you have case in your family. How do you know there's a case in your family? You know because you got tested, you had a cough, you had a low fever, you got tested, now you know. If you can't get that test, you don't know that, you can't self-quarantine, and you keep spreading it. And so the urgency, the real call to action is to really scale up the testing because it's grossly inadequate and it's really hurting the response. So it's hurting the response in real time, but it's also hurting our understanding of the disease itself in real time, right, Marcus? Because this brings us to the whole conversation of, and we already talked about fatality rates, but what we didn't talk about was the denominator. Right. And, and it goes to the conversation about being able to really understand where this virus is taking hold and where it's not. So yes, it's important to do testing right now so that we understand exactly where the highest level of risk is. But you know, fast forwarding months from now, likely months from now, when we're trying to assess when can we potentially and where can we potentially start ramping down some of these intervention type efforts, we're not going to have a very good game plan or roadmap to be able to do that unless we can identify where the hotspots truly are. Um, so the testing is critical on numerous fronts. That's true. And uh, I just keep going back to that individual decision that a family needs to make. Should we stay home? Up until now, they haven't been able to get tested. And so you're operating in the dark and, geez, I feel better now. I'm going to go back to work or I'm going to go to Target or I'm going to go out shopping. I'm going to Costco. But I want to say this. People who don't have any symptoms should not expect to get a test. An example, you feel fine. You go to your uh, primary care doc and you say you, during your well person visit, oh, you know, I didn't get vaccinated this year and I was around somebody that had influenza. Can you go ahead and run that influenza test for me? Just to rule out, you know, I feel fine. That's not going to happen. You shouldn't test that person. There are people that heard they may have been exposed to somebody, but feel well and want to get tested. And I just want to set that aside and say, look, the capacity needs to go where it makes the most sense. And those are people that are symptomatic. They have a reasonable expectation of that they actually have the illness and they're the ones who should be getting the test. And not to get too far into the weeds, but there isn't a limitless capacity of tests. No, there never will be. There's more, you know, we're on the 16th of March right now, and I'm hopeful that by the 20th of March, there'll be a lot more capacity in three or four days because there's those two privates that we talked about, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, they've got their own tests. There are individual hospitals that are using their own laboratories to do the PCR testing. And then the FDA gave Friday an emergency test approval for two additional, but now there's four that are commercially available. And I know two of them are scaling up and I hope they all are because that's how we're going to get enough capacity. It's the federal government, CDC is not going to be magically stepping in like they do in movies and making tests available everywhere. It's the private sector who's going to make that happen.
Marcus, you touched on it a little bit earlier. I want to circle back to this in terms of the philanthropic response, also in terms of the capacity of nonprofits to respond. It's something that we have already heard things about already. It starts really simply, actually. This is the season for fundraisers. This is the season when a lot of nonprofits are doing their biggest and most important events to raise money so that they can operate throughout the year. And those events have just evaporated. So what can you tell us about what you've heard from nonprofit partners, number one, and number two, can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the developing ideas are from the philanthropies in terms of a response? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think philanthropy at large is still trying to figure it out. It's possible for philanthropy to come together and find additional operating funds for nonprofits. I will say that likely the number of dollars that are available through philanthropy versus the number of dollars that are going to be drained out of the system because of this is pretty small. It's pretty inadequate. We're also trying to figure out how do we exactly focus our energies? Does it make sense for us to really focus on sick pay? Does it make sense for us to focus on the operating expenses? Does it make sense for us to really think about the populations that are going to have the most impact, like the individuals experiencing homelessness or elderly? So I think it still remains to be seen, much like the country is trying to figure this through. But I think that just like the private sector, nonprofit sector is going to take a hit from this. There's also discussion about is it possible for some nonprofits to, to merge based on their ability to move through this? So there's still a lot that remains to be seen. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I don't have a perfect answer for that question, but it's something that the nonprofit community is grappling with. And none of us will and none of us do. And as we joked about earlier, whatever we're saying today probably will change by tomorrow, if not by five days from now, in terms of the outlook. But Will, you think you said it really well at the beginning. The more we realize we're all in this and take care of each other, the better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a community effort. It's about the golden rule. Other thoughts? I don't remember... H1N1 too well. I do remember 9-11. I do remember also living in Tucson at the time that Gabby Giffords was shot. And as horrible as an event as it was, I remember it was like the first time that I had felt a real sense of community within a city. And it was, it was the little things like people waving at each other or, you know, little things like if you're driving on the road and letting somebody pass Everybody having this kind of like sense of we realize that we're all in this together and often it was unspoken, but it was a recognition that this is greater than any of us individuals. If we do pull together, if we do take these recommendations from the CDC seriously, if we do take heed the experiences of other countries of which we are tracking pretty much in line with in terms of trajectory for infection rate, if we look at that as a potential future, we can change that future, but we have to do it together. Uh, to that point, I don't know what the organization was that released it, but it was a video of Italians recorded just this past week speaking to their own Italian selves 10 days prior. I don't know if you guys saw this or not. No, uh, it's, it. it's pretty fantastic. Basically saying like, you didn't think it was a big deal then, but I can tell you now it is. Like these 10 days mean everything. It was kind of tongue in cheek in that at the end, almost every voice said, don't F this up. Hmm. Yeah. Like, take this seriously. You never would have guessed how serious it gets 10 days ago, but it does. Yeah. But what was really cool about that, I thought, in terms of what you were saying, Marcus, in terms of community, was this sense of community that is clearly coming out of Italy. And even, quite frankly, the extension that Italians are making, whether it's emergency room doctors or this particular video that I'm referring to, to say to us in the United States, like, hey, learn from us. Mm -hmm. See what happened and come together as a community to do the right thing. While we still have time, yeah. And at the very top, you've asked what's changed in the last 20 days, and I think what's happened in Europe changed my mind about this whole thing. 
here's the other thing. You know, the Chinese government took really extraordinary measures to slow this thing down. They limited civil liberties in a way that we could never do here. That bought us a few weeks, I think. So I'm thankful to them for that. But they have got to shut down these live animal markets. This is the second time. It's got to stop. That's where SARS came from, right? Yep. 2003 SARS came out of a live animal market, and so did this one. It's got to stop. President Xi knows it has to happen, and they're going to have to enforce it. And he knows that because it hurt their GDP badly and killed lots of people. So those live animal markets are a thing of the past, and they've got to start enforcing the bans that they put in place because we can't have another one of these. All right. So, Will, from the time you deposited that op-ed on February 25th to today, you said things have changed a lot. Oh, yeah. You've you've totally changed your thinking, particularly because of the experience in Europe. If you were to cast your crystal ball 10 days forward, what do you think the three keys are to getting this right in the United States? I think we've come a long way in terms of canceling events. So individual organizations have done their part to cancel big congregation events. The next step is individual people doing the same in their personal lives. Um, And so that's the next step. And then the third piece is the private sector entities really ramping up testing and getting that information out to clinicians so that they know how to run those tests, how to order them, and how to get that data back. So ramping up the testing capacity and getting people to make individual everyday decisions to do that social distancing stuff over the next two or three weeks so that we can flatten the curve. But it's, you know, it's not going to stop it, but it's the best we can do. And then, Marcus, you, you pointed out, in some ways, this has echoes of things like 9-11, where the whole country just sort of shuts down and stops. At that time, I lived in Chicago, and I was in the flight path for both O'Hare and Midway Airport, so there was never a time I didn't hear a plane in the air until those two weeks of 9-11. Like, everything just stopped. And, like, I felt weird cutting the grass because it was so noisy. <laughs> um, as we go forward and we recognize that the keys here are to shut down, slow down, and we think about the entire population and the effects that's going to have on people, what do you think the keys are to ensuring that we stay a population of a community that sticks together and supports each other and promotes health and well-being going forward? I think it's in the little things. Will had talked about the government right now, although slower than most of us would prefer, is acting. Companies, businesses are acting. It's going to be the little things that we do on a daily basis within the confines of our own home, within the confines of our individual neighborhoods. Understand who your neighbors are. If you're relatively young and healthy and you have elderly neighbors who have underlying conditions, reach out to them. Let them know, listen, we're doing our weekly grocery store run right now. Is there anything we can get for you guys? Is there anything else that you need outside of groceries? How can we help to support you? Those are those little things that that give that sense of community which is kind of a nice touchy-feely type thing, but it really does help to save lives. Perfect. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, if you see Marcus Johnson on the street, make sure you wave to him. (laughs) I'll wave back. Thank you, Will, and thank you, Marcus. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your time, your insights, and your perspectives on the data, the key focal points that emerge from that data, and the possibilities for our way forward here in Arizona. The coronavirus story isn't yet written in Arizona. As Marcus and Will shared, we still have the chance to practice key behaviors that slow the spread, diminish the strain on our healthcare system, and lower the number of Arizonans who are critically threatened or killed by this pandemic. Let's remember the high points. Number one, wash your hands. You're doing it already, keep it up. 
Soap and scrubbing for 20 seconds, whether you sing happy birthday at the top of your lungs or not, can make all the difference. Number two, practice social distancing. As the president said at his March 16th press conference, we need to limit our gatherings to 10 people or less, period. Number three, if you detect any symptoms of coronavirus, self-quarantine and quarantine as a household to stop asymptomatic spread. Statistical models developed around the world agree on all three of these points. We ignore them at our own and our community's peril. So to paraphrase the mega hit from the band Journey, don't stop. Don't stop washing your hands just because you're young and healthy. Don't stop social distancing just because you want to go out. Do your part to flatten the curve of infections. Do it for everyone, especially the older and less healthy. The data coming back from other countries tells us that community health and lives depend on what we do collectively. So let's do them. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released and encourage others to come along with you. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.